Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And it's hard to believe, but in just about a week, we'll be halfway through summer. Yeah, time flies, right? So before we lose our chance, today we're bringing you a show we do every year, our annual celebration of all things summer in the city. We call it Feeling the Heat. We'll visit one of D.C.'s heat islands and learn what's being done to cool things off when the sun beats down. We'll meet farmers trying to make their gardens grow, even when our weather is all over the map. And we'll experience some culinary heat at a restaurant that takes spice to a whole new level. But first... Even though we're calling today's show Feeling the Heat, it's been relatively cooler this past week, less humid, too. But if you rewind two years back to a particular day in June... I'm Pat Brogan. It's 404. 103 degrees now in northwest Washington. A record high temperature for the D.C. region that stood for almost 80 years was broken today when the mercury reached 104 degrees at Reagan National Airport. The old record of 101 degrees was set in 1934. That was WAMU News. News anchor extraordinaire Pat Brogan back on June 29, 2012, when records were being broken all over the place in terms of D.C.'s temperatures. Well, I say D.C.'s temperatures, but as we just heard, the mercury wasn't actually being measured in D.C. Ideally, Washington, D.C.'s temperature reading would be taken in Washington, D.C. It wouldn't be surrounded by tarmacs. It wouldn't be adjacent to the river. And yet, says Jason Semenow, weather editor for The Washington Post, it is. Since 1942, D.C.'s temperature sensors have been across the Potomac in Arlington, Virginia, at the airport now known as Ronald Reagan Washington National. Most weather stations across the country are co-located with airports, and that's because aviation needs reliable weather observations for pilots to know what the visibility is, what the cloud ceilings are to protect against aviation accidents. Now, when I met up with Jason earlier this week, it wasn't at DCA. Instead, we picked a spot that's been proffered as an alternate location for D.C.'s official weather gauge, the White House. Robert Leffler, who's this retired National Weather Service climatologist, he actually put out a proposal that the uh, official weather observing station be at the White House, and that was actually floated around the National Weather Service for a period of time, but it was um, it was squashed. I, I think because there'd be an added cost to having a weather observer at the White House. Plus, Jason says, moving the station could screw up decades of carefully kept temperature records. If you're trying to see whether the climate's changing over time, you don't know if it's due to the fact that the location's changed or whether there's actually a true climate change signal during that time period. But still, Jason acknowledges a number of potential problems with the current observation spot for Washington's weather. Number one, it's at a very low elevation, being right along the riverbank. Number two, the river can actually influence the temperature at the airport. So you have wind from the south coming right up the river. That's going to influence the temperature because the water temperature of the river is going to influence the temperature of the air at the airport. And thirdly, you're in a very urbanized location with a lot of asphalt. You've got the runways there and the tarmac. And so that's going to also potentially influence the temperature reading that you're getting at the airport. Hasn't it been shown that temperatures measured at DCA are often among the highest in the metro region? I mean, haven't we seen a number of days where 
the temperatures at the airport were measured to be way higher than they were at, at the National Weather Service's other observing sites in the region. And that's exactly right. Uh, Robert Leffler, who's a retired climatologist from the National Weather Service, who's looked at this data very closely, and he's seen that Reagan National Airport is always up there, always at the top in terms of the uh, temperature readings across the region, and even sometimes as hot as temperature regions to our south, like places like Richmond and Atlanta. Reagan National on some mornings is reading warmer than it is in Atlanta, just because there's all this asphalt surrounding it. There's a river, so the temperature has a hard time dropping off at night. However, if you're looking for a temperature reading which may be somewhat indicative of what it's like in downtown Washington with a lot of concrete and asphalt, Reagan National Airport isn't the worst proxy for that. It's not a terrible representation of what the weather conditions are like in downtown Washington. Now, whether it's a good indicator of what the entire region's temperature is like, that's an entirely different story. So where exactly is the weather gauge at the airport? Well, my understanding is that it's on a grassy area adjacent to the tarmac, but that um, the temperature reading is it's shaded it's it's covered it's in it's in a shelter so it's protected from some of the effects that you might have from the um, from the asphalt and, and whatnot but it's not an ideal environment for recording temperatures so one last question um, and I'm actually posing this on behalf of my colleagues at WAMU so we have all these news anchors and they'll come on the air every few minutes and they'll give the time and temperature for DC um, I do it occasionally should we really be saying, you know, at 4.06, it's such and such temperature at Reagan National Airport rather than it's such and such temperature in, say, northwest D.C., southwest D.C.? Yeah, if you're a purist, you want to refer to the location at which the temperature is taken, which is Reagan National. But again, I mean, if you talk to the um, weather observers at, at Reagan National, they'll tell you that the conditions there are pretty similar to what you're going to get in downtown Washington. So again, as a proxy, if you want to generalize, you know, we're just talking about across the river here. So um, it's not a huge distance, the microclimatic influence is notwithstanding. So you're not committing a crime if you say that the temperature at Reagan National Airport is a temperature in D.C., because it's going to be pretty close in most situations. So we're still being honest with our listeners. I guess I just want to make sure that we're telling them the truth, technically. Most of the time, you're going to be pretty close. That was Jason Seminow, weather editor for The Washington Post, outside the White House. And now we ask you, if you could take D.C.'s official temperature anywhere, anywhere at all, where would it be? Take our poll at metroconnection.org or tweet us your answer. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. So however you measure D.C.'s temperature, one thing is for certain. Most summers, it gets pretty darn hot. But some corners of our fair metropolis can get especially steamy. They're called heat islands. And as environment reporter Jonathan Wilson tells us, they can pose a real threat to the health of the community. Kurt Schickman meets me near the corner of 9th Street and Berry Place in northwest D.C. He's focusing on two pieces of poster board, one black and one white, 
that he's laid on the grass next to the sidewalk, and he's holding what looks like a gray and yellow radar gun in his hands. So this is just an infrared camera, and it looks at both the temperature and you know the, the sort of thermal imagery of, of you know various objects, but it gives us a really good, uh, accurate reading on temperature. It might just be the hottest day of the summer, at least thus far. It's about 93 degrees outside and humid. We've only been out for a few minutes, and I'm already sweating through my clothes. The two pieces of poster board have been lying in the sun for about 10 minutes or so, and I know the black piece will be hotter than the white piece. I'm just not prepared for how much hotter. Okay, so you can see here on the left, the black piece of paper is about 156, 160 degrees. Wow. And we just scan over here to the white, and it's about 93, 94 degrees, which is about ambient temperature. You know, it's about how hot it is right now. That is, for the record, about a 65-degree difference. It's a simple and yet brutal demonstration of why cities chock full of black roofs and black streets are hotter than their more rural surroundings, a phenomenon known as the heat island effect. Kurt Schickman knows a lot about heat islands. It's his job as executive director of the nonprofit Global Cool Cities Alliance, an organization dedicated to helping cities mitigate heat island effects. The way we have built cities in the mid-Atlantic and the northeast, they tend to have some of the worst heat islands in the country. D.C.'s heat island effect often makes it more than 10 degrees warmer than surrounding areas. Schickman says the average heat island is 5 to 8 degrees warmer. In other words, D.C. is pretty good at turning hot summer days into sweltering ones. But D.C. is also, well, a hotbed of heat island research. City leaders are currently working with scientists at the University of Michigan to get a more exact picture of which neighborhoods suffer the most when the mercury rises and exactly how many new trees and white roofs it would take to make a difference. Schickman says this neighborhood along 9th Street in Northwest provides a good example of an area that could use a cooldown. If you look on the west side of the street, you'll get an example of what kind of what not to do. You've got a lot. There's no trees on that side of the street. There's a lot of concrete, a lot of asphalt. Big parking big lot. Big parking lot, exactly. The city is not going to eliminate blacktop parking lots anytime soon. But district leaders are pretty bullish about how fast D.C. is moving away from dark, heat-trapping roofs. Roofs like the one Brendan Shane used to have on his house on Morrison Street. How many floors you got here? We have, well, now that we can use our attic, I guess you'd say we have four. Yeah. Shane is walking me up the stairs to the house's top level. Hey there. Hello. Hello. Which today has become Playtime headquarters for Shane's two sons and two of their friends. It's something he says wasn't possible until he decided to redo his flat black roof with energy-efficient and white material. Before that, Shane says the room simply wasn't usable, especially in the middle of the summer. Yeah, it was just storage. You know, and through, through the course of the year, in the winter, it was, you know, pretty chilly. And in the summer, it was, it was you know, it would be 90, 100, 100 plus degrees up in the attic. Shane was more motivated than most to make the change to an energy-efficient roof. He happens to be the director of policy for the district's Department of the Environment. But he says anyone who's thinking about a new roof should really go white. You know, right now, the costs should be about equal. And, and one of the big issues here is education. Most people can, can ask their roof installer for Energy Star options right now and pay very little premium. And staving off the heat isn't just a matter of keeping comfortable. Heat 
kills. And we found that on your average heat, heat wave that's lasts like, say, four to five days, there's about 10 additional deaths in D.C. that wouldn't have happened without that heat. That's Kurt Schickman again from the Global Cool Cities Alliance. He and his colleagues estimate D.C. will save 20 lives over the next decade if it continues to lighten its flat rooftop surfaces and plant more vegetation. And he says D.C. has become a world leader in combating excess urban heat. The city now requires reflective roofing on all new buildings and is actively working to give all flat-topped city-owned buildings new, lighter roofing as well. Brendan Shane says the tougher trick will be changing roofs of all the city's residential structures. But his department is starting to educate people now. You can't ask people to just go out and replace their roof anytime. They need to do it when the time is right. And so we need to get everyone, industry and the city, you know, on the same page so that we know starting now, you know, cooler roofs will go in. And in 5 and in 10 and 15 years, that'll make a big difference across the city. So the next time you get depressed about the state of our warming planet, maybe consider lightening up. I'm Jonathan Wilson. After the break, in April, it's like 90 degrees. The plants go to go into reproductive mode. How D.C.'s urban farmers are coping with climate change. It's just ahead as Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And today, it's our annual summertime special, Feeling the Heat. Now, summer in our region typically brings two things, high temperatures and storms. But area farmers say both have been a little more atypical of late, with erratic temperature swings and violent downpours. And as Alice Olstein tells us, that's making it harder for these growers to produce local, affordable food. So you see here, there's an entire 60-foot row of Thai basil flowering, along with these striped German tomatoes. It's moments like this that make it all worth it for Gail Taylor. Moments when the sun is shining and the land is so lush you can almost hear the plants growing. Less than three years ago, this urban farm in the heart of Brooklyn was an empty grass field sometimes used for soccer. Today, after countless hours of hard labor, the two acres are overflowing with fruits, vegetables, flowers, mushrooms, honeycomb, and herbs. It's one of several plots across the city that make up Three-Part Harmony Farm. I'm also really interested in preserving and maintaining heritage seeds, so now we have six-foot-high blue Navajo corn. In many ways, D.C. is ideal for urban farming. It's fairly flat with a lot of open land, and it doesn't have an industrial history. No factories that left dangerous chemicals in the soil. But Taylor still faces many challenges in accessing land, making her food affordable, and growing crops in an increasingly unstable climate. In the springtime, you can plant earlier and earlier. And in the fall, you get to harvest later and later. So it's really hard because the vegetables have their season that they like, and 
And if it's like cool spring and all the lettuces and the spinach and the mustard are happy and then in April it's like 90 degrees, the plants go to go into reproductive mode. So yeah, like in April and May of this year, I had to take out a whole bunch of the spring plantings because they just bolted. They started making flowers and going into seed production. In recent summers, Taylor has been farming in the evenings to escape the brutal heat. She's lost days and days of work when rainstorms made the fields too muddy and caused some of the crops to rot. But after more than two years of biking to and from her different plots in different neighborhoods, she's discovered they're holding up well in the midst of climate change, proving more resilient than conventional farms. So at one garden, maybe my cucumbers are failing miserably because they they succumb to the too much rain that we've had and the plants are rotting. But then at the other house, you know, for whatever reason, the conditions could be totally different and the cucumbers could be out of control. And so in a lot of ways, it's like a natural crop rotation. And I get to take advantage of all of the different like mini microclimates and ecosystems that are being developed, even in, a, even in one city, in one zip code. The farm's volunteers and customers, including pediatrician and mother of two, Rano Singh, say they value the farm not only as a sustainable local option, but as a model for better farming around the world, from D.C. to her hometown in Jaipur, India. We know how to grow the food that we need, and we know how to grow it with the least impact on the environment. We need to rely on water and on sun, which has always provided our food. We need to look after our land so that it can absorb the water and give us the most from what it gets from the sun energy. That's what we need. We need to stop using fossil fuels for transport, for pesticides, for fertilizers. We need to just allow the land to give us and to nourish it so it can nourish us. With no pesticides, no herbicides, no chemical fertilizers, and mostly no machinery, Taylor and her fellow farmers have had to develop new ways and return to old ways of growing crops. By sharing resources, intermingling plants that sustain each other, and spreading out their risk around the city, they're growing an alternative food system that, like them, can take the heat. I'm Alice Olstein. We turn now from the plant kingdom to the animal. 150 years ago, the passenger pigeon was a common sight in the U.S. But by 1914, its numbers had decreased to just one. Today, you can find that one pigeon right here in D.C. And as Lauren Ober tells us, conservationists say it's a reminder that over the past century, humans have caused our planet to feel the heat in major ways. On the ground floor of the Smithsonian Institution Museum of Natural History, there's a glass case filled with stuffed birds. From a distance, it's kind of unremarkable. But when you see what's actually in the case, the story changes. What you see right in front of you is Martha herself on her perch, and she's got her back to us. She's looking over her shoulder at us, much in the same pose as she was in in those grainy old black and white photographs of her in the Cincinnati Zoo. That's Helen James, the bird curator at the museum. And the Martha she's referring to? 
That's the very last passenger pigeon to ever grace the skies. When she died 100 years ago in that Ohio zoo, she was the end of the line. Martha was a member of what was once the most abundant species of bird in North America, if not the world. She was the last living member of that species. Martha and a handful of other extinct birds are part of an exhibit called Once There Were Billions, spotlighting vanished birds of North America. In addition to the passenger pigeon, the exhibit features the heath hen, the Carolina parakeet, and the great auk, all of which disappeared within the past 150 years or so. Don't you think we should still have those? Yeah, for It would sure. have just taken a little bit of care. I know. Well, we're jerks, so... <laughs> all kidding aside, the truth is, we humans are kind of jerks. The passenger pigeon's extinction story serves as a warning for what can happen when unchecked appetites and careless behavior are allowed to proliferate. We experience some of this in the way we're using our ocean resources, the way we're harvesting from the Chesapeake Bay, you know, where are our oysters of yore? The rate at which we're pulling tuna fish out of the ocean, the collapse of the cod fishery. In 1844, John James Audubon penned a now famous essay about the passenger pigeon. He wrote, The birds poured in in countless multitudes. The air was literally filled with pigeons. The light of noonday was obscured as by an eclipse. Basically, the birds were everywhere. The early ornithologist Alexander Wilson estimated that one flock he saw had over two billion birds in it. That's billion with a B. All the common city pigeons in the world right now would not add up to the number of passenger pigeons that lived in the U.S. in the mid-1800s. They were all over the country, from the Rocky Mountains to the eastern seaboard, even northern Virginia. There are records of them nesting in Clarendon, for example. That was a very different Clarendon back then. The birds had always been hunted for food, but as the railroad and telegraph lines charged west, it meant hunters were able to get word of flocks traveling toward them. Plus, as the nation expanded, much of the old-growth forest that passenger pigeons feasted on was converted to agricultural land. The birds ate tree nuts, and finding beech, oak, and chestnut trees became increasingly more difficult. There was a combination of intensive hunting pressure and loss of those extensive forests that could have been the cause of this extinction. Martha's death wasn't taken lightly. After she died, she was frozen in a 300-pound block of ice and shipped to the Smithsonian. Her passing was widely noted. And her train ride was pretty famous. Our curator at the time, R.W. Schufelt, wrote up a little paper carefully documenting everything that he did to this specimen. He was extremely aware that he would not have this chance again. The extinction of the passenger pigeon spurred the passage of a whole raft of conservation measures, including the Lacey Act. That legislation still serves as one of the most comprehensive wildlife protection laws on the books. All our other environmental laws, our network of laws, have really grown up since then. So the passenger pigeon was one of a series of common birds that apparently we drove to extinction. And it was a real wake-up call for our country. And so if we learn nothing else from Martha, we know this. Extinction doesn't just happen to the exotic species. And often it can be prevented. And maybe knowing that means no other creatures will ever end up languishing in a zoo, the very last of their kind. I'm Lauren Ober. 
going to stick with our animal theme for a bit and meet some folks who feel the heat a little more often than they'd like. They're the emergency responders at the Washington Humane Society. And dealing with everything from rabid raccoons to fallen birds to aggressive dogs can be stressful, especially when you're en route to an emergency and you get stuck in traffic. But as Lauren Landau tells us, these officers say they've found a solution. And please note, this story contains some graphic imagery. It's a sunny Friday afternoon when Raymond Knoll meets up with Shinkino Butler and Ed Owens at a home on 5th Street in northwest D.C. All three men work for the Washington Humane Society, and they're here to pick up Max, an 8-year-old Akita with a serious temper. I'm going to, from this side, and then someone come in through the garage and grab the pole. Max is furious as he bites Owen's catch pole, breaking a tooth on the metal handle. Max's owner, Francis Harper, stands by watching. Several days ago, Harper says, he came home and filled up Max's food dish. Then, the dog he'd had for the better part of a decade did something he'd never done before. When I tried to walk down the stairs, that's when he grabbed my left hand, pushed me down, and then he lunged at my stomach, I tried to push him off me, and then he grabbed my right pinky, and pretty much the top of my right pinky is gone. The initial saying you're requesting us to humanely euthanize him, and then signing here by giving us possession and ownership. In this situation, the dog was kept in a secure enclosure until animal control could come pick it up. But that's not always the case. Scott Giacopo is vice president of external affairs at WHS. He recalls one scenario when danger was real, present, and unleashed. It was pouring rain out, long weekend, Friday afternoon, 5.36 o'clock at night. A call came in from the Metropolitan Police Department saying that there was a dog running at large and that he was acting aggressively. He says the call came from Northwest. At the time, the only animal control officer on duty was across town in Southeast. That officer jumped in his vehicle and took off as fast as D.C. traffic could carry him. So 10 or 15 minutes later, MPD called back saying, where are you people? We need you. The officer spent 45 minutes trying to get to the scene. The next to last call came in and said that the dog had just attacked another dog and there were people trying to intervene and that they were going to get hurt. Five minutes later, we got a call saying we had to shoot the dog. Giacopo says the WHS officer could have gotten there more quickly and humanely defused the situation if he'd had the same lights and sirens as police cars and ambulances. That's the idea behind the Animal Sirens Amendment Act of 2013. D.C. Council Member Mary Chase sponsored the bill. We need to be able to get animal control there right away, and the police themselves would like to have this happen. This is primarily about protecting people, but I just want to add that it's also about protecting the animals. Last month, before adjourning for summer recess, the D.C. Council Committee on Transportation and the Environment held a hearing on the bill. Raymond Knoll, Washington Humane Society's Director of Animal Control Field Services, told lawmakers that D.C. traffic often results in less-than-ideal response times, which can endanger residents. We have dealt with rabid raccoons in highly public areas, deer that have been struck by vehicles causing a traffic hazard and potential for additional motor vehicle accidents. We often respond to situations where dogs have bitten children and are running off with the potential to bite someone else. Dr. Rick Metta, Senior Deputy Director of the D.C. Department of Health, which oversees WHS, also testified. 
He says his department agrees with the spirit of the bill, but has some general concerns. First, the bill must take into consideration the increased risk to drivers and pedestrians at intersections and crosswalks where emergency vehicles may be operating lights and sirens, the operation of which are otherwise strictly controlled. The bill requires drivers to undergo the same training as other emergency responders in the district. The DOH also suggested that the Metropolitan Police Department, rather than animal control officers themselves, should be in charge of deciding when sirens are used on animal control vehicles. The police department would be in a better position at times to make a determination on the emergency of the uh, situation. WAMU made repeated requests for a follow-up interview with the Department of Health, but a spokesperson there did not make an agency official available for comment. Back at WHS, Giacopo is confused by the agency's stance. They would want us to call someone at MPD and get the okay to use lights and sirens. And it just basically shows that they don't have the confidence in our abilities to make these determinations. Che says she hopes to move the bill to markup soon after the council returns in September. You know, I think this is a long time in coming, and I wish we had had it in place before. There probably would have been a number of instances where animals didn't have to die and people didn't have to be in fear. But for now, WHS vehicles will be left sitting in traffic with the rest of us. I'm Lauren Landau. Want to hear more of Lauren's reporting on the Washington Humane Society? You can check out her series on The Animal House, Saturdays at noon here on WAMU 88.5. In a minute, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. It's so good and so spicy. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Sampling the feisty, fiery food of Laos. That and more is coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, we're feeling the heat with our annual show about summertime here in the nation's capital. Earlier in the hour, we heard about the district's heat islands, and we learned about the pros and cons of measuring Washington's official temperature in Virginia. Our next few stories, though, focus on a different kind of heat, the kind you feel when you're sweating out a life-altering decision, like the choice a young woman in Washington faced when she learned she was pregnant at the tender age of 15. But first, we're going to look at the local impact of a major global story, the international flow of children from Central America to the United States, and more specifically, to the D.C. region. WAMU's Armando Truel has been covering this story for months and joins us now to talk about where things stand, both for these kids and for the people responding to their arrival. Armando, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here, Rebecca. So we've been hearing a lot lately about these children, and I think my first question is, why now? What, what is it that's driving so many more kids to leave their homes in Central America and, and come here? Well, Rebecca, this flow has actually been going on for the past three or four years, mostly because of the violence that has consumed Central America. For example, Honduras is the most violent country in the world with the highest per capita rate of deaths, and it is essentially a narco country dominated by gangs in major portions of of Honduras. And so many people are fleeing that. Why are they coming here? Because the Washington, D.C. metro region has the third largest concentration of Central Americans in the United States. And so you go to where your family is, you go to where you feel safe, and this is why they're coming here. 
So then how many of these kids are coming here? Do we know sort of the percentage in terms of the total number of children coming across the border? It's really hard to tell. The government has released data just in the last few days where they said 2,200 children have been processed and released to sponsors in Virginia, about the same number to sponsors in Maryland, a couple of hundred in the district. Now, some of these children, Rebecca, are being placed with sponsors, usually parents or relatives. Many of them are going to local organizations to access social services. Maria Gomez is the head of Mary's Center, one of the groups that's on the front line of this humanitarian crisis. First of all, I think that the the first thing that we're seeing is just the tremendous uh, trauma that these uh, kids are coming with that um, we haven't seen in, in a while. Even one case the other day of an 11-year-old um, that we had to deal who was pregnant um, with a with an understanding that you know she had been you know obviously abused many 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 times. So now our pediatricians are testing children as young as nine years of age for um, HIV/AIDS. And so the kids we're talking about so far, they're, they're coming here alone. But I understand we also are seeing an increase in the number of single mothers coming with young kids. Absolutely. That is the fastest growing segment of this humanitarian wave of people that are fleeing Central America. Single mothers with small children. We had an opportunity to speak to one. Her name is Jennifer. She's 20 years old. She made a very difficult border crossing with her son, Oscar, who was six. And she is now wearing an ankle bracelet because that was the only way that immigration authorities would let her go until her case is heard. I almost died in the desert. And now if I get deported, the gangs will kill me for sure. What's going to happen to my son? And that question, Rebecca, is the one that thousands of immigrant children and mothers are asking themselves. There is a little bit of ray of light. The Obama administration is considering, considering perhaps giving some type of refugee status to people from Honduras because of the level of violence, but that is nowhere near a given. What are local officials saying here in the region? I mean, the decision to house these kids, even temporarily, has brought up so much controversy. So what have you heard from from folks here? Well, you know, it's impossible, Rebecca, to use a broad brush to characterize the response of local officials because it's pretty much all over the place. Frederick County, Maryland, Sheriff Chuck Jenkins has been an outspoken supporter of strong measures against undocumented immigration. He recently visited the border. Let's hear what he had to say. I go back to uh, when I step back and look at what I experienced over that two-day period on the ground down there, just the magnitude of the problem, the humanitarian crisis uh, involved with the children, with the families that are coming across, and the fact that we need to reach out to our elected officials, our Congress, our United States Senators, the administration, and say, listen, this needs to be resolved today. We can't wait. We can't wait two months, six months, or a year. It has to be resolved with, with at least at least a game plan at this point. Well, in just a few weeks, we have school starting. So I'm assuming we're going to see a, a large increase in students there. Is there a game plan in terms of education? Well, absolutely. Now, Jenkins was uh, speaking about a federal game plan, which there isn't because you've got gridlock between the Republicans and the Democrats, what a surprise. The local officials are the ones who are actually taking the active role because they're the ones that are dealing with the children now. So, for example, Montgomery County Schools saw 107 students last year. This month, they had 123 additional students enrolled for summer school. There was a council meeting recently talking about some of the needs for these students. This is Uma Alawalia. She is the head of Montgomery County's Department of Health and Human Services. So what are the supports and services that these children will need? Education and health, for sure. 
mental health services, especially culturally-based trauma-informed treatment, um, these children have seen extraordinary trauma, violence, death, housing, not just for the children, but some of these children are going to be reunited into fairly at-risk situations. Um, immigration and legal support services um, are going to be needed not just for the child, but also for the families. And that is the dilemma that all of the local officials throughout the metro D.C. area are facing now, Rebecca, not just Montgomery County. How will they address this? And um, there really isn't an answer. Armando Truel is a senior reporter with WAMU 88.5. Thanks so much for joining us today, Armando. You're welcome, Rebecca. And one last point. If anyone who's listening wants to know more about this topic that is impacting our community, you can find a lot of information, questions, answers, links to more information on the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our next story is also about children, a young girl in D.C., and the young boy she's now raising. When Tanasia Matthews got pregnant at age 15, she could have chosen to drop out of school, like so many other teens do each year. But she didn't. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza brings us Tanasia's story as we wrap up Beating the Odds, our series on local high school students overcoming challenges to find success. 18-year-old Tanisha Matthews was a pretty typical teenager. She was popular in high school, involved in the green club and the dance team, and did well academically. I was always a real-rounded student. My grades always were in the A and B range. She was also dating a boy she had known since elementary school. And then when she was 15, she found out she was pregnant. And I told my son's father, and at first we tried to calculate how how far I might be. She hadn't noticed any changes. No weight gain, no pain, no nausea. Tanisha was certain she was just a couple of weeks along. But when she went to a clinic and saw a nurse... I was six months and five days. Tanisha was practically a baby herself, only in the 10th grade. It seemed unreal. I didn't find out the sex of my child until I was about eight months, because at first I didn't want to know. So when we found out that he was a boy, that's when I realized that, yeah, this is real. I'm really about to be a mom. And we got my due date, which a month before I turned 16. So I was like, you know, most people have sweet 16s for their birthday. I had a baby shower. Tanisha laughed to hide all the fear she felt inside. On the outside, I was just smiling and making jokes about it. But on the inside, I was really scared about what my life would turn out to be. Her boyfriend was supportive. Her mother and grandmother were upset at first, though they came around after a few months. Her father took it hard. He basically left my life from when I was six months pregnant all the way up until my son was three months. I was very hurt because I felt like He left me when I needed him the most. Getting pregnant is the most common reason girls drop out of high school. But Tanisha hadn't really thought much about how her pregnancy would affect her academic future until she was riding the metro and a stranger struck up a conversation with her. They asked me how old I was and I told them that I was 15. And then they said my stomach and they asked me was I pregnant and I said yes. They asked me was I going to drop out of school and I told them no. 
And then they say, well, you think that, but you actually are. You're, you're not going to become anything but a statistic. I got really upset to the point where I got off the train because I felt like I was about to break down. That conversation made Tanisha determined to graduate high school. I can't just drop out and let my son see the struggles. I just thought about his future and when he get older and they, what do your mom do? Oh, she dropped out. She don't do anything. The secret to continuing to get good grades, Tanisha says, was sticking to a very strict schedule. Right after her son Jalil was born, she took seven weeks of leave from school. But every Monday she would go to her class to drop off work and pick up the next week's assignments. I went or try to cram it in on one day. I'll do like English on a Tuesday, math on a Wednesday. Now her son is two years old and she still divides her day into little chunks of time. It would be three in the morning and I would get up before he would to go make his bottle and warm it up so that by the time he woke up at four, that bottle is there. Then she's up at 6.45 every morning. I'm usually ready by 7.15, and then I start getting Jalil dressed. And we go in the bathroom, and we sing our ABCs and our one, two, threes. He can count to 15. Then she walks him to his daycare center. I usually have him to school no later than 8.15, and then after that, I will walk to my school. In the evening, she picks him up at 4 for playtime. He goes off, and he plays with number games and puzzles, while I do some of my homework until about 7. We eat dinner. He takes a bath, and he's usually in bed by 8.30. When he goes to sleep, I finish my homework. Then I go to bed by 9.30, 10 o'clock, and we do it all over again the next morning. Tanisha says she works really hard and pushes herself to complete her schoolwork, but she says she has a lot of support from her family. Many other teenage mothers she notices aren't as lucky. When they have their baby... You know, if they don't have the support at home, they don't get it from school. When they become pregnant, they already have the mindset that they're not going to the next grade. And then once you have the baby, is if what if you don't have the support? It gets overwhelming. She's become the go-to person in her school for other teens who need advice on parenting. Everything from how to find daycare to how to feed babies on a schedule. She wants to organize a club through which organizations can come in with food, clothing, diapers. Places that would help them find shelter, you know, if they've been kicked out. Or some kids have run away, not came back and you haven't seen them. Or you don't see them until you're walking down the street and you're like, hey, where you been? And they're like, oh, I had to leave. Tanisha has a baby face herself, and when she talks about financial worries and her dreams for her son, you just want to hug her and tell her it's going to be all right. But she's also got a wise and thoughtful manner that makes you feel you can learn so much from her. She laughs and says she used to spend more than an hour getting ready, and now she wakes up earlier and races through her morning routine because of her son. He was my main motivation for waking up at 6.45 or 6.35 to show him that yeah, you know, sometimes it struggles, but you can push, you can get through it. And I did. Tanisha is going to Trinity Washington University in Northeast D.C. this fall to study social work. Between all her different scholarships and grants, all four years are paid for. Her father is back in her life, and she decided to stay local so she and her son can be close to Jalil's dad. Tanisha says the most important lesson she's learned is to always ask for help. You never know where asking can get you, she says. It can open new doors. I'm Kavita Kadosa.
Kristen Sorensen contributed to this report. Partial support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Our final story on today's Feeling the Heat show is about heat and food. Laotian food, which isn't among our region's best-known cuisines, but one local chef is looking to change that. Sang Longlot fled her native Laos during the communist takeover and eventually wound up in California. She became the designated family cook at age 14. Thirty years later, she has her own restaurant, Bangkok Golden, in Falls Church, Virginia. Emily Berman stopped by the eatery to learn how Sang plans to spread her love of Laotian food and its intense spices across the D.C. area. When Chef Sang took over this restaurant in 2010, it already had the name Bangkok Golden and a reputation for decent Thai food. So she kept the Thai concept going while slowly sneaking in some Lao dishes just to test the waters. So people come and I'll have my server tell my customers that, you know, today's chef having special uh, traditional Lao dish. So I start serving the Lao with sticky rice. Lab. That's a minced meat and vegetable dish. More on that later. And then I start serving papaya salad. Then it's getting more and more, and we realize that, wow, it's amazing. People actually like it. Laotian cooking is, is my passion. And so is educating her customers about her native country. Some people still have no idea. I mean, where is Laos? Is it China? Is it Thailand? And just so we're all on the same page here, Laos is a country of nearly 7 million people nestled in Southeast Asia, bordering Vietnam, China, Burma, Cambodia, and Thailand. More than half of the 230,000 Laotian Americans live in California, but our region is home to roughly 4,000 of them. Not a huge number, so it's no wonder people get confused when they see the menu is half Thai and half Lao. Lao cuisine and Thai cuisine using very, very similar ingredients. A lot of same herbs, um, a lot of lemongrass, ginger, galanka root, uh, kaffir lime leaves. The difference is the technique of cooking. We do a lot of grilled meat or a steamed meat that makes like a salad with different herbs. And we don't do a lot of stir-fry. Thai food uses more coconut milk. Laotian cuisine uses more herbs, like dill, to flavor. Thai food tends to use a lighter, fermented fish sauce. Laotian food uses that too, but they also take the same fish, boil it, and create a heavier, fishier sauce called padek. And in the end, Chef Zhang says, the real difference between the two cuisines comes down to spice. Laotian cuisine, she says, is a lot more spicy than its Thai counterpart. If it's not spicy... It's not good. Back in the kitchen of her restaurant, Chef Sang is using a mortar and pestle to smash a handful of chili peppers into cloves of garlic. She's making papaya salad. Like back in Laos, um, you know, we hang out late at night, and there's papaya salad stall will be open, and we'll eat that like a cafe. Like, okay, let's go get some papaya salad to wake us up. She makes each batch right when it's ordered and warns her customers that what's spicy at other Thai restaurants is considered mild here. So beware. She hands me a fork to taste it. It's so good and so spicy. Oh my gosh. (laughs) 
It kind of wakes you up a little bit. That was it. Like one little bite, I'm out. Papaya salad is common throughout Southeast Asia, but it's originally a Lao dish. Another Lao staple is lab. Well, the word lab means good luck. Um, that's what it means, good luck. So when you go to a ceremony, like traditional events, um, you will see lab. Lab is, is the minced meat. So it can make from any kind of meat or vegetable. Today, she's making lab with duck. We roasted the duck and then we chopped it. It's then cooled to room temperature and mixed with all kinds of vegetables and herbs. Chili powder, fish sauce, lemongrass, cilantro, scallion, mint, and minced galunga root, similar to a ginger root. One main important ingredient for the lab is toasted rice powder. It's, it's add a crispy to the, to the dish. Mix all those ingredients together and you have a chopped salad bursting with flavor. As we dig into the lab, Chef Zhang says she'd love to see Lao cuisine hit the mainstream. She's set to open a second location this fall in Columbia Heights, which will be the district's first Lao restaurant. I wish one day people know what Lao food is all about. You know, um, people got a chance to, to taste it, to experience it, you know, enjoy the flavor. Yeah, kind of changing people's taste bud a little bit to the spicy. <laughs> I'm Emily Berman. We have a video of Chef saying showing how to eat lab like a Laotian on our website, metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can also find her recipe for the dish so you can try your hand at Laotian cuisine at home. Again, that's metroconnection.org. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Armando Truel, Jonathan Wilson, Kavitha Cardoza, Lauren Landau, and Lauren Ober, along with reporter Alice Olstein. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Julie Alderman. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production on the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. If you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click This Week on Metro Connection or subscribe to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you an encore presentation of D.C. General, our exploration of the city's largest homeless shelter for families. We'll meet residents who call the place home, from adults to kids. We'll consider the facility's future, and we'll look back at its early days as the district's public hospital. Everybody agreed that care was inadequate. Everybody agreed that there was overcrowding. Everybody agreed there wasn't enough money. But that doesn't mean there were results. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.